Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest is Max Miller. He is the creator and the host of Tasting History with Max Miller. You can see the show on YouTube. It's really cool. It's all about history and food and what people were eating at different moments in history. I love history. I love food. Uh, So I think you'll really like his show. I also think you're really going to like the story of how his show came to be because our friend Max Miller uh, took a dose of pandemic misfortune and mixed it with his own creativity and came up with his particular recipe for success. Uh, I thought that he would be uh, inspirational uh, to some other folks. I found some inspiration in Max Miller, and I think you're going to enjoy him, and I also think you're gonna enjoy his show if you haven't seen it yet. Tasting History with Max Miller, and here I am with Max. Max Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I have to tell you, you are the confluence of so many things that I love. Making lemons out of lemonade, Disneyland, (laughs) Disneyland, Mm -hmm. food, and history. Let's take it from the top, because once upon a time, you had a great job working for Disney. Tell us about your job and why you loved it so much. Yeah, so I I got to work all over the company, which was wonderful. I worked at Disney Cruise Line and Disney Character Voices, but my last position was working for the movie studio, and I had been there for seven years, I think, working on some of the the biggest movies of all time, you know, Star Wars and Avengers and everything, and I worked in the marketing department, and so, you know, we, it was just, it was an artistic atmosphere. It was full of camaraderie. Everyone was so excited to be there, because the the size of these films and how popular they were. It was just a really exciting time to work there. And I kind of bounced around. I worked in media. I worked in the creative marketing side um, on the music team, working on trailers. You and were then Prince Charming? I, you were Prince Charming? I was Prince Charming, yes. When I worked on Disney Cruise Line, I was, I was Prince Charming and Peter Pan, um, which was, that, that was one of the best years of my entire life. I had this wonderful job at Disney, and um, then I got furloughed, obviously, for COVID. Before the furlough, you then go to Disney World. I should—I haven't been to Disney World. Um, I've been only to Disneyland. Oh, but uh, yeah, I'm <clears throat> sure it is because it's only a bigger version of the happiest place on earth. Uh, you develop a passion for baking because of the great uh, British Bake Off. So you then take that passion and start making cakes and videos for your friends. And they're into it. So you're still working at Disney and you're making these videos. Why? Because you just love to bake and you love the show and then you realize that people like to eat what you made? Well, it was it was interesting because, so we went to Walt Disney World. I went with my friend Mo and she got sick on day one and we spent the entire vacation pretty much in the hotel room. We had been to Disney World before, so it was, you know, it wasn't too bad, but um, we, we basically spent the whole time in the hotel room. And she introduced me to the Great British Bake Off. I had never cooked a thing in my life. I didn't even know how to like boil water for pasta. I was, <laughs> I was a mess. And, but I fell in love with this show because 
one, I'm an Anglophile. So anything English and charming, and, and, I'm, and I'm in all the way. Um, but two, the, it was so different from every other reality show that I had watched here in the U.S. because cooking shows here in the U.S. tend to be like, okay, make, make us a dessert, but you have to use this like three-day-old garbage squid ink <laughs> and special K, you know? Whereas this was like, no, not only are we going to bake stuff that's just wonderful, but in those early seasons, they taught the viewer how to bake. They went through the, the process a lot more. And so you could learn simply by watching the show. And that's what I ended up doing. I, I came home and was like, I'm going to try to make some of those things that they made. And so I just, over the next few years, kind of taught myself um, how, to, how to bake. Also in those early episodes, they would talk about the history of what they were baking. And I think that that's the other thing that grabbed me because while I didn't cook, I've always loved history. And so just kind of marrying those two topics was, was really interesting to me. And so I would bring in my, my bakes to, to work and, and have my coworkers try them out. But if they wanted to eat it, they also had to listen to a little lecture on the history of whatever <laughs> dish I brought in. And Christmas of 2019, we had uh, a temp who, who was there all, uh, uh, often, and we were at a Christmas party. And she said, you should put this online. You should put this on, on YouTube. They're interesting stories that you tell. And, you know, the, the baking is wonderful. And just immediately I thought, well, I want to bring back those Great British Bake Off history segments that had gone away. They don't do them anymore. And so I started Tasting History on YouTube. You must be really good because not only do your colleagues want to eat your food, they're willing to listen to your history lessons about where the food <laughs> came from. But when we got, we'll, we'll talk later um, about your great show, uh, Tasting History. And it's easy to see why they listen to you because you're so fun. You've now got this YouTube channel. You've got a job you love at Disney. You've got colleagues who you love at Disney who are encouraging this outside passion. Uh, but then you get, uh, you have to deal with the same thing that the rest of humanity dealt yeah. with a couple of years ago, which was <laughs> COVID and you were yeah. furloughed from Disney. So during the furlough, you do what? It happened right after I started the channel. I started the channel. My first episode was the last week of February and we got sent home the second week of, of March. So it was, it was very soon after I had started the show. We tried to work from home for a couple weeks, but the movie theaters were all shutting down. And at this point, I was working with the movie theaters, so there wasn't anything for me to do. So we went on furlough. And my then fiance, now husband, was was working from home. He also works at Walt Disney Studios. Well, he was very, very busy because he was working on Disney+. And that was, you know, it had just released. So I had to stay out of his hair. And we have a very small condo. So my, I had to just go up to my room and sit all day while he was on meetings. And so it gave me so much time to, to really focus on the channel and more so focus on the skills that I needed to develop to make better videos. There's so many aspects to making good YouTube videos that you don't think about. And, and those first few months, I just had nothing but free time to, to focus on that. It was great. Then Disney calls you back and they say, 
Yay. Everybody's going back to work. At some point, you decide you are going to follow your passion, Max. You turn your back yeah. on the great job with the very stable employer who everybody knows. They've been there for a long time. Disney's going to be around for a long time. But you take a leap and bet on yourself. Uh, how do you have the courage to do that? The channel had taken off. And so it was, it was making an income. And two, I have Jose, who still works for the company. So, you know, we would still have insurance and everything. And, and he makes, um, you know, a good living there. So even if, if everything fell apart, it's not like we would starve. But it was a sacrifice. I mean, you have to take a leap. It's a sacrifice. Yes. And it's funny, you mentioned this stable employer. And one thing that I had learned that a lot of people learned is stable employment is not stable. They, I mean, it sounds harsh, but they abandoned me for an entire year. You know, I was furloughed and, and not being paid for an entire year. So this employer who, who I loved and I loved the work, they did not stand by us when things got tough. And so any, any feeling of loyalty, that was gone. So then it just became a feeling of, I love this job, but I also love tasting history. And I knew that I couldn't do both because I had now invested so much into tasting history and the videos were becoming longer and it, it's a full-time job. So I had to make a decision and kind of looking out five years from now, tasting history could become something extraordinary Whereas my job with Disney, I had a very set path. And I decided to opt for extraordinary, even if it's not a sure thing. Let's just talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts, because lots of people have access to YouTube. Lots of people uh, like to make interesting videos and put themselves up and, you know, friends and family and others like and share and all of that. How do you turn that into a business, Max? Like, how do you say, you know what? Um, I love this passion. People are watching these videos. Uh, my partner and I are going to just kind of dig in deep and I'm going to go out on a limb because that's not a responsible choice for everybody. But you, it wasn't a responsible you know, choice for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you clearly had some things in play. You know, you had some things in place that made it make sense for you. Can you just sort of explain how you navigated that transition? I think there are two parts. One is simply having the background to be able to make the kind of content that people do want to watch. And I have failed at a lot of things in my life. Um, and it at the time of those failures, I felt like a failure. And now looking back, they have all been learning experiences where I learned the skills to do what I'm doing now. I was an actor for a long time, and I don't wanna say I failed as an actor, but I ended up quitting because I wasn't paying enough of my bills, you know, as an actor, and I did voice acting. I, um, you know, I, I worked in the in music, and, and that didn't work out. I've worked in writing, storytelling, and that didn't work out. But in each of those endeavors, I learned the skills to be able to do what I'm doing, which is, storytelling, acting. I'm, I'm myself, but it is acting. It is 
performing in front of a camera and and the cadence of of videos it's it's like music it's the 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 ups and downs and everything so all of those skills i think it takes a lot of time to learn those skills and so sometimes when someone just jumps into youtube and they don't have those skills it's going to take a while to to develop that and everybody can i think but i had already done that before starting the show so that was that was fortunate because you know, a lot of people have to make one or 200 videos before before they, they catch on, before people decide to start watching them. The channel really grew within four months for me. So, you know, I had made about 20 videos. So that's fortunate um, for me. And, and because of that fairly rapid growth, I think that that's one of the reasons I had the confidence to make the decision to, to, to follow Tasting History. You know, I've always been a big saver, so we had a little saving, so if, if things went wrong, we've got that. I was waiting for it. You didn't do this on credit cards. You didn't do this just on I credit did cards. Not. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, so there's um, another YouTuber that I would watch named Graham Stephan, who's a finance YouTuber. And he also made a, um, a series of videos on how to make YouTube videos. And the, watching those videos ended up really helping me to, to start the channel. But also watching his finance videos because I would get so motivated to save. And this is really in the two years before starting Tasting History. So I was saving, you know, as I, I was kind of a cheapskate. I'm just gonna... <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I would save more than I probably than than I probably should have, um, and I'm so grateful that I did. But Max is like, I get to be cheap because even though I will not buy a round of drinks, I will bring y'all some cake, and you will exactly. eat my cake and love my cake. So just because, exactly. so you contributed, you you yeah. you carried your yeah. weight in the, in your friend group, I'm sure. Um, let's talk about this great show on YouTube, Tasting History with Max Miller, you have had as many as one, four million, 14 million. When I say one, four, I want people to get, it's not four million, 14, 14 million views, 14 million. Oh, wow. um, Sounds like a lot. <laughs> I know, I keep saying, I was like, 14 million. I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> number. I mean, if you just look at, you know, how many people are watching different TV shows during the day, for instance, or like 14 million, you've got a lot of eyes on you. Um, let's talk about what you do on this show, because I was watching some episodes where you did a month about the Titanic. And when I say you did a month about the Titanic, friends, Max looks at the menus of what the passengers in different classes um, of travel on the Titanic were eating. And I learned that what, the last first course that a third class passenger had on the Titanic was rice soup. And that made me sad. Cause I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, like if that's gonna be the beginning of your last meal, like it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, that sounds so sad. Was there more to this? Were there some culinary surprises that you learned about people who were traveling on the Titanic? Because you spent a lot of time on these Titanic menus. Um, did anything yeah. surprise you? I think, I, I mean, the most surprising is actually one of the big surprises is how well the third class 
got to eat. Yes, it's rice soup, but one, that's only one of several courses. And before, not long before Titanic, if you go, you know, 20 years before, people in third class had to bring their own food. So, you know, you'd be on a transatlantic crossing with no food unless you had brought it. So the fact that they were even fed was a big step up. And the diversity of dishes that they were getting was a lot more than what they would have had on land. Um, absolutely. You know, most people, it was bread and beer was, was the, <laughs> that was a lot of their, a lot of their meals. Um, what's really though awe-inspiring is what the first class is eating because today I feel like I have more in common with a third class passenger than I do with a first class passenger because the first class passengers on Titanic, you know, we think, oh, like a first class passenger on an airplane. No, more like the first class passenger on Jeff Bezos's rocket because <laughs> these people were the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks of of 1912 in in England and the, and the US some of the wealthiest people on on in the world were on that ship and so the food that they were eating was just outrageous you know 10 courses for dinner and each course was more elaborate than the last and and then they would go have, you know, cigars afterward. And it was just, it's it's fantastic. And the dishes, sometimes it's something that we can absolutely recognize today. Like I'm, I just made one that is a steak with Bernays sauce and potatoes. Very wonderful and something that you could find today at a nice restaurant. But then the dessert that I'm going to be doing is peaches in chartreuse jelly. Well, you're not gonna find that anywhere. It's basically gelatin or jello that has been made with chartreuse, which is a liquor, and then with peaches inside. And so that's just so different from anything that we eat today. Boozy peach jello. It's peach, boozy, yeah, exactly. boozy peach jello. I wanna try exactly. it. Yeah, it's I, those I'm, weirder I, dishes that I like and that I like exploring on the show in general because it it's just so different from anything that we eat today. I think it's funny when you talk about the third class passengers on the Titanic having to bring their own food because it is that is how I don't know if we've gone backward, but uh, isn't that like what it's like traveling today for when, most people yeah, who get on the plane? Get on it, <laughs> you have to beg for I water. I'm always having, you know, I'm buying my my sandwich in the in the airport for nineteen dollars or whatever, and and bringing it on because I know that, you know, pretzels is all I'm going to be getting on a six hour flight. You know, Max, what have you learned about kind of uh, different? moments in American history from the food? I mean, that's sort of a sloppy way of answering, uh, of asking the question. But when you go back to these Titanic meals, for instance, and you talk about the first class passengers, and you talk about this uh, on your show, Tasting History, you know, a lot of little courses. They might have 15 courses, but it would be, you know, just a taste of a lot of different things. And then you know, you read or hear about these Gilded Age parties that would start at nine and then they have a first course and they're eating a supper at midnight, then they have breakfast uh, in the morning. It, it strikes me that in moments in history where the gulf between the haves and the have-nots was even wider than it is now, the haves lived it up like in ways that are just 
you know, staggering, you know, that, that, that make Jeff Bezos's indulgences look conservative. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. And, and what, I mean, all through history, not just American history, all through history, that is the status quo. The rich are mega, mega rich, and then pretty much everyone else is dirt poor. And there are very few people in the middle going all the way back to ancient Rome and the Middle Ages and, you know, throughout the 18th and 19th century. That's kind of been how it is. And what is disheartening for me as someone who is trying to learn about food history is there isn't much written about what 95% of the population was eating. We only have recipes for the most part from those very, very wealthy people, and everyone else just kind of gets forgotten. And I think that the last 70 years or 80 years here in the, in the world in general, but here in the U.S. especially, have been an anomaly. And that we'll look back and, and say, boy, the 50s, 60s, and 70s were very, very different than any time before and any time after. I do like to think that the world is getting better in general in, in so many ways, but when it comes to, you know, that kind of that split of wealth, I do think that we're maybe going in the wrong direction at the moment. <laughs> I think that, you know, as you and I sit here, uh, you married, uh, you in a marriage that would not have been legal in just a few years ago, and me having received an education and done things that... Uh, people who look like me used to be killed for. The world's gotten better, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, yeah. What's something there that you always you've, will be? Always will be. That's 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 our job, Max. Uh, our job is to is to keep it moving. We can have some fun though while we're keeping it moving. What is something that surprised you about uh, the cuisines? Because I know you like the you you describe yourself as an Anglophile. Um, I saw a delicious recipe for corned beef, medieval corned beef on your site. What's something that you mm. learned about kind of the cuisine and dietary habits of the, if not the totally have-nots, at least the middle classes? You know, we know how the super wealthy may have eaten, but what's something that you learned about the dietary habits of ordinary folks? Obviously, it changes throughout history, but for the bulk of the last thousand years, those people at the bottom, it, it's funny because they have eaten or they ate the way that we want to eat now. More fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, white bread, extremely refined white bread was the expensive bread because it takes more time to make uh, refined white flour. And so Wonder Bread style bread in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, that's what the rich people ate. Whereas the poor people ate, you know, this whole grain rye and wheat breads and everything. And they were the only people eating fresh fruits and, well, especially fresh vegetables. The wealthy always cooked their vegetables to the nth degree because fresh vegetables were seen as one, poor people's food, but two, as actually a, a health issue. Um, you, you had to boil it or, or roast it completely. So while the poor people's diets tended to not be as, as varied because they had very small amounts of meat in their diet for the most part, and when it was, it was usually salted meat that, or cured, you know, they had 
been sitting there for months. Um, it was actually usually typically rather healthy, which I think is is one of the reasons why we tend to think of of them dying so much younger back then than we do now. But when you take out infant mortality and and dying as a child, they didn't live that much uh, shorter of lives than we did, and they probably had healthier lives, at least in their diet, when they could get the food. <laughs> the problem always in history is famine is just so common, and that's not really something that we deal with now here in the United States. Obviously, there are people who are hungry, but famine is not something that we we have, you know, large swaths of the population unable to to get a hold of food. So that that is something that is also very, very new. Um, until very recently, famine was a big problem, and that's usually what took people <laughs> took people out culinarily, at least. Well, you know, if you think about it, once upon a time, when the people who were in charge of the food were women who generally weren't allowed to do much else, and all of a sudden they've got a choice between, hey, I can grind the bread by hand and then let it rise and then go to the oven and then let it rise and then do all of that, or I can go get some Wonder Bread and then have some coffee with my girlfriends. Like, option yeah. two is, uh, would, is a much more attractive option if you were the one doing the work. But you've got yeah. an interesting vantage point about history and food and culture, uh, do you think that we are now en route to sort of a new consciousness toward food? Are we entering a different type of historical moment for food? Uh, if you know what I mean, like we, yeah. does it does food mean more to us now than maybe it did in like the growth of the fast food culture in the fifties and the sixties and the seventies? I would like to think so, but then I also wonder if that doesn't come from a little bit of privilege where 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 I live, where we live in general in in the U.S. Sometimes it's kind of hard to to think of the entire world. I I don't think that that's a. a I think that our changing views of food are not shared by by much of the rest of the world right now. And it's simply because we get food so inexpensively here and we have that kind of luxury. We think of food as expensive. <laughs> it's not expensive in comparison with much of the world. So I think that's a, that's a bit of a luxury that we have, which you know I'm, I'm happy to take. Um, I do think that there is a growing, you know, just the idea of health is around food is, is a growing topic, but it's always been there. Going back to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, in every cookbook you find recipes for what they called invalids or convalescents, people who were sick or you know needed food for their health. Granted, most of their ideas were terrible. It was just like weak broth is good for if you're if you're sick and you know have this type of fat if you're if you're you have gout or whatever. Um, but that idea of food is health, it, it's not new. It's just, I think we're getting better at it. I would like to think that said, I still, you know, I still eat fast food. So in a lot of ways, we're not getting any better um, because, but again, because it's cheaper. And there are different fast food options. So we shouldn't paint there are. with too broad a brush. Yeah, I am curious 
looking looking ahead, and I don't think that this will be in the next 10 years or even even 100 years, but I do think in the future, one huge change that we'll have culinarily is we're just going to eat a lot less meat. Um, I think that kind of animal rights is, is going to end up becoming a huge issue in the future, and that will affect how we eat. And I say that not as a vegetarian, I eat a lot of meat and I love meat. So knowing though that in the future, I do think that that's going to actually be the really big change in how we eat is, and it's not just an animal rights thing, it's more of a animals take up a lot of space and are very expensive to raise. And um, that's not a really sustainable thing, at least in the quantity that we're eating them. Question for you, Max. You now, your fairy god person says to you, you get to be a guest at a dinner party at any moment in history. Do you want to be where, what is the best historical moment in your view for food? For food? Is it a gilded, um, is it a gilded age dinner? Is it a 1960s dinner? Is it, what is the best? Definitely not is the it is it a 17th century dinner in a palace somewhere in Scotland? You can pick a century and you can pick, like, you can pick your place. Where do you get to be a dinner guest? Where do you want to be a dinner guest? And when? When and where? I think I would have to choose Versailles at the, during the reign of the Sun King. So like the 1670s, 1680s, at least if you're the king. Or the royal family, because they had this this meal that the king would sit there and he would have sometimes up to hundreds of dishes brought before him and set in front of him. And he would look at it and maybe taste it and then move it away. And then the next one would come and each one would be more fantastical than the last and it was a huge change in the way that we ate. Um, it was it was around this time that the idea of sweet is for dessert that was a new thing. Um, sugar went in dessert, not in in entrees and and appetizers. Drinking different wines with different foods and having fresh vegetables, having vegetables at all that everything was was all new and. Everything wasn't so highly spiced. It was starting to be more flavored by higher quality ingredients and uh, lots of herbs and everything. And and I would love to have been present for one of those. Again, if I'm the king, because after the food passed the king, it went back to the kitchen, sat for hours and hours. All of his courtiers were watching him do this. And only when he was finished could the courtiers purchase some of the food that had that had passed by the king and by his then it was leftovers? Cold his leftovers his leftovers <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that makes me know that um it only made sense to be alive in the past if you were royalty <laughs> let me tell you let me tell you that's why I, I always i always want to visit the past but for like 5 minutes and only then if i'm rich yeah Indoor you know what max I, I, I never want to visit the past. I never want to visit the past. I'm going to stay. I am staying right here. Um, we definitely but live in the best time. We live in the best time. And I 
think that when Max is king, I want to go to dinner at his palace. In the meantime, yes. check out Max's YouTube channel, Tasting History with Max Miller. It's not just about what they were eating on the Titanic. It's not just about this delicious corned beef. It's not just about the rice soup. Uh, you will learn so much about food and history and where we all come from. Uh, and frankly, going back, Max, to where we started, you are such an inspiration because something uh, dark happened to you and you took that darkness and you turned it in. You didn't just make lemonade, you made lemonade with a shot of vodka if you drink and some <laughs> mint and berries. So uh, good on you, good on you brother for doing that. I hope you come back, I hope you come back. And everybody uh, check out Max's YouTube channel, Tasting History with Max Miller. Thanks Max, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, it was a pleasure.